What I'm saying is that we were getting you closer to relating to the children. And Dude, the minute the that youths. these kids tell me they want to remove semicolons <laughs> from their code, I was done with them. I was done with those people. You know who you are in New York. few kind of news articles. Yeah. Some of them related to open source, some of them not so much, but there were a few articles from the last couple of weeks that I wanted to talk about on our show today. I wanted to get some of your thoughts mm. about these things that are thoughts going on. Thoughts cost five wetwares per minute. Five wetwares per minute. Mm-hmm. I want all the wetware software you have. Mr. Z, call Greg. He wants some wetware. No, I don't life. want his wetware. <laughs> no, except for that wetware. That, that wetware isn't accepted here. Not, not him. We don't, we don't like your con around these parts. No, I don't, I don't actually <laughs> think that... He would like build the worst wetware. I just don't want Facebook's wetware. I don't want Facebook's wetware. It'll probably work. It'll probably I mean, be if really he good. spins off his own company he's and it's not ad based and he builds wetware, then he's not going to do that. He's not gonna do sure. That. He's not going to do that. Anyway, first article. Mm-hmm. This is not even really an article. It's kind of a, uh, a thing that we noticed. This is actually a. Did GitHub you put it on the repo. screen? It is on the screen. Oh. Jamie has put it on the screen for us here. Okay. So this is a GitHub repo. Yeah. Uh, for a project called X Ray. Mm hmm. And X-Ray, according to the README, yeah. X-Ray is an experimental electron-based text editor informed by what we've learned in the four years since the launch of Atom. Mm. So you can think of X-Ray as the next generation of Atom. Does at, it run? At least that's what it was supposed to be. Yeah. The reason why this is in the news now, even though it's been something that's been worked on for, it looks like maybe two, three years or so, four years or so, uh, is that there was an update made... When was 21 days ago. 21 days ago. Three weeks ago. Yeah. And the update is to the readme. It says, GitHub has decided not to move forward with any aspect of this project. Any aspect of this project. Any. And the repo has been changed to a read-only archive, which is a feature of GitHub, which allows you to keep code publicly available, but you cannot open any new issues. You cannot issue any new pull requests against it. So it's designed to be exactly like it's called an archive of code. Yeah, there were a couple of reasons why I wanted to bring this up. The first is this to me looks like the end of Adam, because the second that you say we are not working on any new features of a piece of software, that's the beginning of the end. What is this piece of software that was a fork of what they learned on Adam? I mean, it's next generation Adam, essentially. Right. This yeah, is what if current gen atom is just fiendish. So, so I'm glad you bring this up because that is the question, right? Where's the go to the atom repo? The atom repo is still active. The atom repo is still being used. I know for a fact Atom is still alive because I know people that still use it. Not the actual thing, but the when was the last time code was written to Adam? Twenty six days ago? Why is it not on the screen? What is it? you don't know how to control screens? Oh, should just cast a desktop, huh? Probably. Yeah. Probably. Unless you want to hide what you're doing from your monitor. Oh, hey, I don't think it it knows how to smart switch the input, Greg. (laughs) Oh, man. Your TV is going to be like rereading the pixels and then transferring what you're looking at to the rest of the TV mesh network. Oh, it was asking me if I wanted to do... The TV mesh network. What's on here? Okay, so this is the Atom repo. 
Adam Reeve was updated 26 days ago or 18 days ago. 11 days ago. 11. It says 11. That's the 11 smallest. days ago. And that's in source too. So that is a lot of files. A lot of files. But a lot of these are like, this is all change log, code of conduct, contributing. These are things that most people aren't going to have. Pull request template. All right. That's how you know you're big time when you have a template for your pull requests. So what does, Adam, what does Adam look like now? So Adam proper is actually still, looks like it's still alive and kicking. But Wait, scroll the, down. I haven't used Adam in a long time. Is that what it looks like now? I think, it's like. I think that's the default light. I think it comes with a light and a dark. No, but I think it has less stuff going on. I think it does too, right? Download it right now. How fast is it? Uh, let's see. I bet it's in the Linux repo. Let's see if it is. Oh, oh you're on Linux. You can't just download things. I forgot about I that. I can just download things. You're the one who can't just download things. You're I'm updating Bionic Beaver. I'm, I'm doing this one. I'm installing via uh, the snap. Pretty sure there's a snap. I had so much fun installing PHP on Bionic this weekend. How was that? Very annoying. Is that hard? Uh, the... Oh, it's a, it's a classic. So this is an older package. They haven't even updated this, which is, again, showing. Yeah, so it's downloading right now. So well, what if that's out of date? We won't know what the not, real item is like. What do you mean, Don Dash Classic? What does that mean? Classic Just, means that it was packaged under an old format. So the, the, the snap protocol, no, man, the packaging format has, has gone through asleep. some changes initially. I'm, I'm going to cut all this out. It's fine. What? Can't cut it out. It's the best audio ever. The reason why I bring this up is that to me, the reason why I say that X-Ray being archived looks like the end of Adam, it doesn't mean that Adam is going to be shut down tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It means that Adam is going to go into zombie mode. Or it's going to keep getting developed in whatever they were building out of. The living dead. But how X-ray. far is it going to go? What if a lot of the things that were in X-Ray are already in, Adam? Why would there be a separate repo for it then? Because they were trying to re-solidify the code base and the project got canned because they don't have people that want to... The guy who was working on it left or something. What is the reason for any sort of rewrite of any software base ever? Because you want to streamline it and make it cleaner. So instead of doing that, they'll just start to slowly move Adam to have some of the features of X-Ray and they kill the X-Ray project. Of any, any rewrite that you've ever done in your life that has been canceled, what has happened to the original project? has stayed exactly the same as it is. Not necessarily. Exactly they could have the decided that they don't want to dedicate an entire team or they don't want to give a developer his 20% time to work on X-Ray or like the person who was originally championing the X-Ray rewrite left or who knows. The other problem Wait till they this, do their tell-all in 12 years on the X-Ray tell-all. Well, the other problem with this is that Microsoft's the boss now, right? And what is Microsoft building? VS Code, Yeah. So if you're Microsoft and you have... Maybe they're going to pull in the pieces of X-Ray into the core of VS Code. Maybe they already did. That would make sense, but you don't have a repo for VS Code going, oh, we're not going to work on any new features for this yet anymore. Sorry, bye. I mean... It's not telling in and of itself. It's telling in, in that when you take it in context of what is going on with Atom, what is going on with GitHub, what is going on with Microsoft, what is going on with VS Code. And we've seen this... I feel like we've seen this a lot in the open source world where a project that is kind of a big time project that people have used a lot and people have contributed to, they don't ever really just die. Mm -hmm. They just stop getting updated. What if they take the core of VS Code, which is already better than Atom, and they let the Atom team make a skin for VS Code and call it Atom? You don't know what the heck they're doing. That There's could be, people with different preferences. Maybe but, the people inside don't like the way that VS Code looks. So they're just going to make a theme for VS Code that looks like Adam. But the place to do that would have been in X-Ray. 
Not really, because what if the core of VS Code already has similar code to X-Ray and already has a lot of the benefits of X-Ray and the little internal core of what runs VS Code is already fast enough and has all those features and they're just going to make it, I don't know. I mean, why would, you, why would you be Microsoft and let another division of your company maintain a competing developer code, a code editor to the one that you make internally as one of the most popular code editors in the world? It seems like the amount of work going into Atom at minimal has been significantly reduced. Well, what if it's what if they just make Atom open source and then they give up? Atom on is it? open source. It's already open source. Is my okay. point. So is VS Code. So is VS Code. But the thing is, is that you can have internally. What if someone paid forks people. X-ray and then? Well, that's what the archive is for. But dun, dun, without dun, the backing dun, of Albert's a code large editor, company, without the backing of a large company like GitHub. Or Microsoft, as we've seen, it's very hard to maintain even large, highly adopted, mm. well-regarded open source projects. Hmm. It's hard. It's hard. And there, there aren't any easy answers there, but I've seen this movie before. It seems I'm like, pretty sure I know how it ends. You know, it seems like it's not really that big of a problem. How much money do you think it takes to make Adam? How many developers do you need? I don't know. How many developers do you think we need to make Adam? I think I've heard that the VS Code team at Microsoft is 12 people. Mm-hmm. And some of them are in San Francisco. Okay. So just for the people, you're looking at like $2 million. How much money does Microsoft A make? year? Per year. Right. Microsoft, that's nothing. That's a round of year. Way less than that. They lose money. That's why they go bought. But for Joe Schmo open source developer, it might as well be a billion dollars. One billion. Well, I don't know. You should ask them. You should send them an angry tweet. Right. I saw this uh, thing when I was installing style components the other day on a project. They have a little flag in the install that shows like how much people have contributed to them yeah. for their monthly budgets and it updates every month or so. I think their monthly budget is somewhere around like $2,000 a month. That's it? That's for, that's to pay one developer on a, pro- a part-time thing that he doesn't get paid for. He has a full-time job. Right? And they were just barely making that. So think about how popular South Components is. And they came and land $2,000 a month. So the idea that you're going to be able to run a budget, a team of 10 people to work on a code editor on a zero budget, just the economics of it doesn't work out. Well, so reason- I think that this decision comes down to that rather than the popularity of the project itself, right? It's just simple economics. Like the people running the spreadsheets at Microsoft can go, hey, this looks like this. It's a Spider-Man meme, right? Like mm-hmm. they're pointing at each other. Mm-hmm. And they're going, why do we have two of these? Yeah, except for the fact that VS Code helps them sell TypeScript. And Adam doesn't really do anything. Well, how much money do they make on TypeScript? I don't know, but it's obviously something they care about. It's a, it's a, they want to take over the internet. They want to Microsoft, uh, what is it? Microsoft, uh, what's their editor? What's their internet browser called? No one uses? Edgeum? No, the other one. Edge? No, the real one. Internet Explorer? That one that no one really wants to use. Uh, they want to take over the entire code base of the future of the web by controlling TypeScript, just like they wanted to with IE. I don't think they can is the problem. I have a hot take. What's the hot take? TypeScript's going to fall down just like IE and CoffeeScript. 
Don't at me. That's pretty spicy. If you want to have a typed language, use a typed language. That's all I'm saying. You want to build a website out of, out of Java? If you want to build a web, well, do you want to really want to, does your website need strong typing? At this point, yeah. I don't know if it does. I built plenty of them without it. One of the biggest Mm-mm-mm. criticisms spicy, of spicy sauce. the JavaScript ecosystem and the web you know, ecosystem one of the, one of the biggest is that things it's, about? A, it's, like, it, mm-hmm. it's an immature language and that it doesn't have the characteristics of a quote-unquote mature Yeah, but you know what... Uh, that is actually... So I actually want to mm-hmm. say... I want you to save the rest of that spicy hot take mm-hmm. because that actually is going to mm-hmm. go into the next article that we're going to talk but about. But I have one more thing to say Give without going to the other topic. Give us your last thoughts on this one. I think... I think that if you're going to build a website, the whole benefit of having JavaScript is that it's really fast. In the browser? No, no, no. Like it's really fast to develop on. Right? For JavaScript developers, yes. Okay. Well, making ty- make it have strong typing does not like make it any better. Like it, it, no, it does. Don't, don't, it doesn't make it any easier to write. It actually makes it harder is what I meant to say. Because now you have to think about your scripting language actually having strong typing and compiling. Which granted, yes, I understand it's 2019 that JavaScript requires compiling. Well, it doesn't require, but uses compiling to make stuff work. (laughs) But I don't know. I can see it being useful if you're building like a really big Node.js application on the back end and you really do need strong typing. Like you're pulling data out of GraphQL and you want to have it typed and you want to have it transfer between protocols within your back end and all these things. But I would have an answer to you on that one. It's called serverless. Why do you need a really big application anymore? And you have little tiny scripts that manage their own little inputs and their own little outputs. And you don't need strong typing for a function that's 40 lines long. Hot topic. Next topic. That stuff actually... <laughs> I actually agree with you in a lot of ways, but the, I think that our perspective on the importance and the maturation of JavaScript is a little bit different. And I'm glad you bring that up because that actually... It doesn't really matter because we've already talked about the other hot take of the year. You, in the future, websites are not going to be built with there's JavaScript. Not, there's not going to be any websites. It's going to be WebAssembly. And it's going to be whatever language you want. It's going to be Rust. Maybe. It's going to be something yeah. else. Rust's main thing is that it is stupidly strictly typed. Yeah. It's also a language designed to be strongly typed. Punk, if you want strong typing, use a language that has strong typing. Don't make a language have strong typing. Use oh. a language that has it. The point of JavaScript is that it's scripting and it's fast. When WebAssembly comes out, if you want strong typing, you can use C. You have the fastest website in the world. It won't be fast to develop on, though. Well, you got to learn how to develop faster or they'll build tools around it. They'll make packages for it. You can build it in C Sharp, man. It'll it's all be still, fine. Don't worry. It's still not fast. You ever, do memory, you ever do memory management in C++? Memory management. Yeah, Malik, could you imagine? Bro. Could you imagine teaching the modern-day web developer... Who only knows React. Wait a minute. Wait I a deal minute. with wait. So memory you're telling management? me that I have to make an array with Malloc wait. that's a certain size. I have to know how many things are in this array. That's actually ahead of time. What? That's actually C, not C plus plus. C plus plus. You don't really need to allocate. C? Well, you do. Oh, up in there. You garbage can. collection. Well, you yeah. It has garbage collection. The point of C plus plus. It has garbage collection. Oh man. C does not have garbage collection. So you, whenever you alloc anything, you have to. Whenever you malloc anything, you have to deallocate it. Malloc and dalloc. By dropping the pointers. Dropping the point. Well, actually, dropping the point is how garbage collection works. When nothing's pointing to it, it gets garbage collected. In C, regular C, you actually have to physically deallocate things that you create. And this has been the C++ show with Greg and Albert. I don't know. I'm, I'm spicy hating on it. I, I don't really... 
I do see the benefit of TypeScript. I'm just kidding. But I don't really know if it's like, it depends what you're building. Like if you're building like the world's largest front end app for like a multinational corporation or something, then yes. Or if you're building like a relatively large application, then maybe. But I mean, if you're just building like a small little four page website, you don't need TypeScript. My opinion. Maybe, maybe. But I think that dovetails nicely with our next article. Okay, so the next article that. is regarding the new features coming up in ES 2019. ECMAScript 2019. When is it going to be released? I have no idea. So why are they called 2019? Is it is it the year know. that it was conceived? Or I think solidified? it's the year of conception, yes. Not the, the year, year of birth, release. Not, well, it's the year of conception, not the year of birth. Because as we all know, Greg, life well, begins at conception. Actually, <laughs> as we all know... Everything is transient because you can probably use ES2019 in Babel already. I mean, so ES6, there's that. I'm pretty sure. Actually, I think you probably can. There's probably a Well, you're not it. actually using it, but you can use the syntax. I mean, ES6 is technically the ECMAScript 2015 mm-hmm. spec, but mm-hmm. it wasn't actually finalized, I don't think, or like publicly released into the actual, into actual ECMAScript until like 2017 or something like that. So the years themselves are not very integrated. Oh, no, I think it's based on when the spec is approved versus when it's put into the, when the language levels released. Yeah, I would wager that it's going to be sometime next year. What is this, ES7? This is... ECMAScript. So I've seen it referred to ES7? a couple of different ways. Here it's saying that it's ES10. Where did they go from 6 to 10? No idea. Where's no 7, idea. 8, and 9? I don't know. Who took nine? Who took nine? Where's eight? Okay, so what we're looking at is a list of new features in ECMAScript 2019. You told me to read this and I didn't, so lecture me. Well, we're just going to go over it. Okay. And one of the things... I I, want to go down this list real quick. I want to get your ideas on the specific things in this list, but then uh, we can talk about kind of the bigger picture. Does it say adding TypeScript to core language? Because if it does, I'm I'm out. (laughs) You're going to rage quit? (laughs) No, I'll just learn JavaScript. JavaScript. I know Java. I'll learn TypeScript. Okay, so the first couple, uh, most of the most of the things added are either array methods or object methods, or something or, or methods around those to help you manipulate them. So the first couple here are array flat and array flat map. Mm-hmm. So exactly as the method names imply, array flat will flatten any array, and you can pass a parameter to tell it how many levels you want it to flatten. So it defaults to just one level but you can pass it infinity, literally the word infinity. Oh, amazing. A new, and and it'll flatten everything to one level. Mm. That's pretty neat. Flat map, as the name implies, that's the same thing, but just map flatten, but also give you a map over it. This one, I think is super awesome. This is really cool because this flat map thing is typically two steps. Right? If you've mm-hmm. got this array of arrays of things all mm-hmm. kind of mashed together, you typically have to kind of sort that or, or flatten it out into a usable array first before you're passing to your map. This does it in one method. Yeah. I mean, usually when I need to do something like that, I mean, I, haven't, I can't really think of a time in the past when I've had to... If, if I needed to flatten arrays, I probably would use spread. Yeah, that's one way. I would say like array zero dot dot dot, or dot 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 array zero, with dot 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 array zero of the other array, would probably be a way that I would do it. But if I didn't have ES six, then yeah, I wouldn't have. I probably would have went to like either jQuery or Lodash. I'm pretty sure jQuery had a flat back back in the day, and then when Lodash came out or underscore, I would have done it with that probably. But I mean, the cool thing is that they're adding a lot of these features to make it so that you don't necessarily need Lodash. And the whole point of it is that 
the flat operation becomes a native C++ operation in the browser because it's native code. But then good luck having that work in IE. So you're never going to be able to use this. It's always it doesn't really matter. Always. Why are you making always? Sounds? I'm making sounds. I'm, I'm doing stuff. That was cool. It's, I felt like I was in uh, Zelda for a second. It was like when I when you open up like a gift or something that somebody gives you. That's not my Anyway, flat map. That's a neat one. Uh, we've got a couple of string methods here: trim, start, and all oh, left pad. This is reverse left revert, pad. Inverse left pad. Yeah. So, you know what you could also do is just. I, have to I mean, I that guess. Now. Why? Why would there you want to do a, that? There is a uh, like a you could slice. You could you could do the why, uh, why like don't you just call trim trick or trim? I think trim is a little bit indiscriminate, or you have to like pass it. You have to tell it no, exactly which places it, to do it. Does it does at the beginning and the end. Oh well, this is either or. Yeah, why? I don't understand why you would want to do that. Like natively in the language, like why would you? Maybe it has something to do with bytes, like dealing with yeah, string this, buffers. This probably maybe takes less time mm -hmm. or is faster or something like that. No, no, like. Using these things on primitive things like byte array, like byte strings. Oh, where you're actual you're actually reading the bytes yeah. and the strings, maybe. Could be. I don't know. Yeah. So that's an interesting. I can't one. think of a use case why I'd want to use that. Though. Yeah. This one I think you might like optional catch binding, so you no longer have to pass an error object to your catch and your try catch. How, how does it know what the error is? Is it implicitly bound to the context? The this Some, context? Well, how many times you've written a try catch and you don't actually do anything with the error? Oh, you don't do anything with the error. I see what you're saying. I feel like I've done that a lot, and I feel like the language doesn't me. really need to know that. Doesn't really you need don't need right. to make a new thing for that. that if also I need it, like I can add any it. other language. You could also just write an empty function and not put the error in it. But the thing is, this this doesn't dude. It removes two parens. These people are getting too lazy. With this this doesn't prevent you from using error. It just means that you're not required to pass. Yeah, error I know, but they're doing anymore. all these things to this language that makes it so that you type less. I feel like the people who made uh, the standard JS. Syntax. Oh, you get the ones again? that are. Yeah, I feel like those kids <laughs> who don't want to type their semicolons are the ones that are in charge of ES twenty seventeen. Don't at me, you kids. Twenty nineteen. Can you can you put your fist like this and go? Yeah, you kids. You just don't want to write an extra paren. Like you really, kids. you kids. Does any does any other language have optional catches? I have no idea. Listeners, I've listen never now. seen it before. It's probably some Haskell thing. You're, you're making a good point, but I do feel like just type the damn paren. Completely anecdotal. Actually, you know what? You know what? I might actually see why they did this. Now, now that I think about it. Because arrow functions, when you don't have a value, the paren isn't required, is it? No, it's not. No, no, no. It is required. But if you have one... No, you can do, you can do a, like an implicit return with no, with no parameters. So, no, yeah. you can, but you, you, don't have to, you don't have to write the parens if you only have one value. Right. So there's some weird stuff like that. But you do have to write the parens if you have no value yeah. to an arrow function. Or no, you no, don't. Not, no, you don't. You don't. If you have a an if you have a anonymous function with no parent or with no parameters, then you don't have to put the parents. So that's what this is. This is consistency. It's consistency. I still don't like it. They shouldn't have done it with the arrow. Well, I, I mean, how many ES times you, forces you to wrap it in parents anyways? The Airbnb style not guide necessarily. You it require. I know, but the Airbnb one requires you to add the parents even if you have a single value. Well, that's why they did this because then it you're not going to get slapped by your that. kids and your damn semicolons. Next one. One last thing on this one. I agree with this one because anecdotally, I feel like I've written several try catches where I don't actually do anything with the error. I just want to know that there is an error or that whatever's in my try has not been hit. You know so why this is annoying? Because okay. if you need to rethrow, you have to then, well, you could, it that's probably. Different, though. That's, that, that's a separate uh, thing. I can tell you 
that there's going to be some young developers who forget to rethrow their errors. They're going to catch it. Production code is going to crash because of this. Because they TypeScript to the rescue. No, TypeScript won't. If this is an implicit thing of the language, it's not going to say, "Mm, well, you don't have an error here. Well, it's going to say, you know what they're going to do next is they're going to, they're going to do lexical scoping of the error here. And it's going to be like this dot error randomly is going to be the value. Whatever. Sounds like a job for TypeScript to me. I feel like it's just type the print. So this next one is actually, this is probably, I think the most important one object from entries. So what object from entries does is that it allows you to build a correctly formed object with correctly formed key value pairs from a janky array. This one's a little bit difficult to explain. Why would you want this? Because how many times have you had to mash together values in weird array object types and then from that you need a fully formed object. I've done this a lot. I've run into this problem what a lot. What data where are you to, dealing with? So what is showing da- on this? data jujitsu, man. What is showing on the screen here is new map of two arrays where it's essentially iterating over both in turn and creating an... Uh, you can, can you create the object or is it implicitly doing that? It creates the object. But is, object that, is that shorthand because you have a map there and it's... So you're just, you're overloading the map function to accept two arguments and then it mashes them together? Because occasionally... Because map usually has a function. Because remember, the jujitsu, you've got data coming from different sources and if you have to mash it together in some sort of way to where you're reading it again. This is essentially kind of what GraphQL is doing under the hood. It's taking different pieces from different Mm. areas of wherever, mashing it together, not really initially worrying about your data type. In GraphQL, you have a schema where you define the data being. No, I'm saying under the hood. When you're defining your schema or when you're defining your actual call, right? Your call is a subset of whatever's coming back from that API call. Yeah, well, you make a resolver, the resolver makes the data available. And then, yes, they're doing some filtering and munging on the But it gives you, under, it gives under you back a nice clean object, doesn't it? But it, not in, necessarily. In, in you the know, exact, it, well, in the exact way that you define it. You have to it. define the keys for multi queries. If you have two queries in the in the call from like a like an Apollo provider, it'll give you back the results keyed on the name of the query. Right. So this is an optimistic way of doing that in one line with one method. This is going to solve a lot of problems because, no, because this is what, a data jujitsu thing. What Apollo is doing is it's taking the two queries that are named because the query's named in the in the result in the request the mutation of the query's named. It's essentially returning back an object where the result is the key name of the query. So it's not quite the same. The thing that annoys me about this, and I, I should be reading the RFCs for these to understand why they're doing it in discussions, but I'm not. I'm just, this is totally me just like spitballing here. But that's not even the argument of map. And also, oh, it's a, it's a map map. I'm thinking of map it's reduced a, it's map. It's an instance of map. Mm. It's an instance of the, of the prototype of map. It's not a, it's not a you're not calling not a map function. It's not a map. No. Hmm. See, now you understand. Still don't really care for it. This is pretty neat. I think this goes along with our data jujitsu opinions. I think this is a good thing. I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see. see how it goes. There now. We'll see when IE breaks because you do that. To be fair, it is, it would be very easy to not be able to keep track of what this method is actually going to be doing for you. So, like, if you're instance of the map prototype is not even like formatted the way they expect, you could still get weird results out of this. So this is not a, this is not a, what does it do if the two things have different lengths? That's the thing. 
if you end up with like an Will odd it crash, probably it'll probably give you either give you something weird or you'll probably get some sort of error. Right. So that's what I'm saying. This is not the end all be all. But I feel like that that doesn't really make any sense. If you give it more than one. I feel like you should just do this with with an actual map. If you know they're the same length, if it's required that they're the same length, then you can just map on the first one and take the keys of the Maybe other one. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't know. I don't know. This is, I think this is not, mm -hmm. uh, this will help out in a lot of situations, but you really have to keep an eye on it. That means that you it really shouldn't be in the language. On. You should write code that does that and then you can warn and type check and do all these things against it. If it's magically doing it, what happens if you pass something with two keys and another thing with 10 keys? Do we even know? We'll find out when it gets released sometime oh, in the future. Sometime not in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, when they break my my Redux code, for yeah. sure. Uh, so this last one is symbol.description. Is you a read-only description property returning from optional symbol objects. Have you ever used a symbol object? Um, I haven't, but it's something I, I believe it's it's very JavaScript specific. What do you mean? What is it? What is this? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is it. I'm looking at their example. And Google and yes, six, what a symbol is. Let's, let's read it. Well, Learn. I'm looking at their example here. No, but this saying, example assumes that it's, a, it's the description property of a symbol, but you still have to know what a symbol is. So the symbol, so see how they're defining the symbol as some object down here. If you console log I'm this. I'm pretty sure this is like an enumeration. This is what you do in Redux. You know how like when you used to define uh, actions in Redux and you used to give them a string name, a symbol essentially becomes an enum of one, of one length. So you're creating like a primitive data type out of a string, which is essentially an enumeration of zero length. Okay, and then you can evaluate or of one against, length. Sorry, of length one. And then you can evaluate against string. It's basically saying like, is this other? So you're you're defining a custom data type that has a name, right? And then you're you're able to do quality comparisons by saying like, is type of this symbol this other thing? Is it the same as the type of of the other thing? And then description is actually giving you the actual value of the symbol. See, because see how up here the string that symbol object is not. It becomes it's essentially same. an enumeration. It's, it's an enumeration like of a of string. one length. It's an enumeration of one length that you can. What enumerations do in like Java is that you can define essentially a custom. It's almost like a custom data type that has a name of like Albert, for instance. And you can have a bunch of. And you can properties. call it whatever value yeah. you want. So it's an enum of Albert, and you can in, in enumerations you can have more than one value for the enumeration. It passes like an array of names. Yeah, TypeScript does that too. Yeah, because it's a language that copies all the other languages. Yeah, yes, for yeah. sure. Yes, totally. But this, I think, is used to create custom data types. That actually makes perfect sense, and it still gives you access to the actual value itself. Well, yeah, they're just adding the description because you could never get back because you the never original get back value. to the original once you symbolize it. Sure. Well, makes we sense, should Google. Google, what's the use of case of symbols? Let's find out. Let's learn. Maybe Greg's wrong. That's what I think it is. Yeah, it's a primitive custom data type. The symbol function returns a value of type symbol, has static properties that expose several members of built-in objects, has static methods that expose the global symbol registry and resembles a built-in object class. Oh, Albert went to like a screen of Linux. In a built-in object class, but is incomplete as a constructor because it does not support the syntax new symbol. Every symbol value returned from symbol is unique. A symbol may be used as an identifier for object properties, this is this is the data type's uh, only that, purpose. There it is. Some further explanation about purpose and usage can be found in the glossary entry for symbol. So it's for the it's it's to give you additional object properties on whatever you're doing. A string usually looks like it's usually a string. Uh, 
it's a primitive. It's a custom primitive data type. I think it's. Uh, I don't know. This is where I. I've literally never Greg used this symbol. Job, right? Greg doesn't write enough code to know what this is. I don't know what this so, is. This either. is beyond my. But I think that my life. The the description symbol dot description makes sense. I think the way I explained it makes sense in my brain, but I could totally be wrong. I think it's like an enumeration of length one, that essentially creates a custom data type that's named and it has different attributes to it. But you can't. Can you assign anything to it? Can you say like I don't think you Albert symbol equals twenty seven. I don't know. I think this is like a. I think it's used as a low-level means to create unique to give you descriptive data like enumeration. Like, like the only way I can think of it is like in Redux when you used to define action names, it would be a symbol. Yeah, that makes and sense. And then it's always that thing, and inherently inside of it, it has a meaning, and you can equality check it against things and use it in things like switch statements. And then you have to explicitly define whatever your methods on that are. It's basically an. Maybe I'm wrong. Listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's almost like an enumeration of length one. That sounds about right. So that you can use, so that you can create a custom property that you can use in switch statements, which is essentially the purpose of an enumeration. That sounds right. But sounds right. you know, I don't know. So those are all the all the all the new methods. Yes, you know what they should do in ES twenty twenty? What's that? Remove colons. <laughs> all semicolons, not colons. Sorry, right, yes, semicolons. <laughs> I don't know. I'm tired. And define an object anymore in ES2020. All right. So the the thing I wanted to talk about with this list. Yes, they should. You know what they should do in ES2020? They should remove objects. No objects? No objects. Just go straight to functional programming. Oh, Every geez. value is a function. And they create a new custom data type, type called symbol function. Symbol oh, funk. No. Symbol funk. Sim funk. And then when you write JavaScript, it'll just be like funk. And then all of a sudden you're in like Haskell or something. Funk the sim. Sim yeah. funk. They should just make it a fully functional language to the point. Because right now, just the make cool it go, thing about right? JavaScript. No. The cool thing about JavaScript is that everything is inherently just an object. Including yes. functions. Yes. They're all equal. So you should just write it so that every primitive, you can create custom primitive data types and they're always functions. And then that's all you do. And they remove everything else. Purity. No, no other data. No types. semicolons. No arrays. Purely function. Yeah, your array <laughs> is a function that is essentially a map. No prototypes. Yeah, and you have to write your map from scratch. Kids, you better brush up on your binary tree structures. So what you're saying is that you want to make JavaScript C again? No, I want to make it into something new that's cooler than C. Function functional programming is new. No, no, no. I want to make JavaScript. I'm opening the M&Ms. Oh, I geez. want to make JavaScript into something that is better than anything ever before it. Uh, aside from... And then you're going to need WebAssembly just to use JavaScript in the browser. It's going to be amazing. Aside from... In full circle. Greg wanting to make JavaScript completely not JavaScript. Yeah. The thing I wanted to bring up about remove this Remove those list, damn semicolons. If you compare this list to what was in ES 2015... ES 2015 was like nine years in the making. Right, but if you think about how much of a sea change that ES 2015 was, right? Arrow functions, constant let, spread operators, all that kind of stuff. It completely changed the way that we write JavaScript. Completely. Even without things like React or Vue or whatnot, it completely changes the way that anybody writes JavaScript. Yeah, it made it way better. Made it way better, right? If you compare that... And point taken about it taking many years to get to that point. But compared that with this list, this list is, these are quality of life improvements. These are not giant leaps forward. But that's because they're being more proactive with their releases. That's part of it? It's like PHP was on version five. For like many, for many like years. 12 years. Yeah. 
You know how many versions? They skipped six, went to seven. They're already on 7.3. I think that... And that was like two years ago. It has less to do with the actual numbers themselves, but I think that this is a sign. What is Node on? Like version 14? Node is on... I just installed this. I think it's 12 something. Yeah, I'm I'm still on like 10. Something like that. Anyway, I think that the, the relative tameness of these methods in this list is a sign of the maturation of JavaScript. This is a sign of JavaScript growing the F up. Well, the, you know the, th- the reason why I... Uh, I don't actually hate TypeScript. I'm kind of just kidding. But one of the reasons why I, I sort of don't like TypeScript is that it completely changes the way that it looks but doesn't really change the way that it functions other than having type checking. Yes, obviously I'm not dumb. That's there. And it has things like interfaces and it has a few things that are nice. So in theory, I should like TypeScript. But it makes the language look completely different. I think one of the reasons why I like ES6 so much is it made the language different, but it also made it actually enjoyable to write. Well, see, so that's... ES6 is dope. So then that's like an objective opinion of how the aesthetics of it. Remember, we talked about... The aesthetics, aesthetics and the actual feeling and enjoyment in writing well, in JavaScript. I've had more fun in the past three years writing JavaScript and ES6 than almost any other language I know. But how much jQuery did you ever write, though? I would write jQuery. I would love to write some jQuery in ES6. No, you wouldn't be writing in ES6. That's the point. That's you what I'm can. saying. Yeah, you, you would never, you would never, you weren't coming from jQuery to ES6. Yeah, I was. I wrote jQuery before. Not like, well, you didn't I like, wrote like many years of jQuery. Learn how to I do learned on, on jQuery. Yeah, I did. That's my point. Yeah, okay, so what I'm saying. You didn't learn on jQuery. About TypeScript. I wrote many years of jQuery before you were a developer. The, the, the type checking and the immutability of certain parts and the strictness of certain parts of JavaScript that TypeScript gives you is the point, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is enough, of, it has been historically enough of a problem of having, and even going back to the early days of, of object-oriented programming, of you have a variable in your JavaScript and it's one value one place and you're evaluating it over here and something in between did something to it and now it's not the value they expect. And you have no idea between there and here what is going on with that value. And that callback like hell... Have, sounds like you have a... Uh, that, well, that's what JavaScript transfer is. problems. That's it depends what on how you write was. it. It depends on how you write it. I think one of the biggest... That was always the problem with JavaScript, and that is the problem that TypeScript mm-hmm. is solving. And so if you are a person who's gone through dealing with callback hell of not knowing what the this is referring to, not knowing where your functions are being called, trying to go through the entire call stack of a giant JavaScript application, the benefits of TypeScript are obvious and clear and welcome. So okay, I, I think that the point of it, mm-hmm. I think that you are correct in that the type checking is the point of it and it's one of the few things that TypeScript is doing, but it's worth it. Depends. That part of it is worth it. Except for the fact that if, I think one of the biggest problems that JavaScript made was trying to marshal itself to being an object-oriented language. It never was. It's a, it's a prototypical-based object language at its heart, but it didn't even get the class structure until ES6. Right, it doesn't... It had the concept yeah. of classes, but they were 
it wasn't really the same thing. But how much of that was them being like, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to enforce classes on it. No, my point is that they had it right from the beginning is my point. To not have classes? Well, they have classes. But my point is, is that they had the fact that JavaScript is so brilliantly written as a functional programming language where the variable, every single function is just a variable was so brilliant and for, uh, there was so much accidental forethought in that. Yes. That the smart way to to treat and use JavaScript is functional. That's why React is so powerful because it's- Because it's functional. It's functional it's JavaScript. It's functional JavaScript and it's not, it is also, it can be class-based if you want it to be. But the classes are functions too. But the, well, I'm talking like actual classes, which are just syntactical sugar on prototypes. But the point is it's the fact that they have classes is for syntax. It's just for the way that it looks and the way that it, yes. people understand it and the way that, you know, objects have constructors, which was always something that was really confusing with JavaScript. There were constructors, but... Nobody ever used them. They were kind of weird. And then, you know, people created like in, uh, like encapsulation methods for writing little... To essentially use closures to create classes. Yes. With revealing module patterns and all these things. And they did all these... There was all these patterns that would create objects for JavaScript because... It made sense. It makes sense to organize and logically structure things to where there are classes that can be started and constructed and have functions and do all these lifecycle hooks like React tapped into, obviously. But I think that the fact that, oh man, I just got another item from my Zelda friends. I don't know if people can hear that. So they're going to be like, what are they talking about? Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that JavaScript went so long in trying to be an object-based language to try to like really embrace this object-oriented uh, pattern that things like Java have done was kind of a mistake in my mind. Because what JavaScript actually should be, it's not really a mistake. I mean, don't take what I'm saying so seriously, but like it's not what it's designed for. If you want to have an object-based language and you really want to write an OOP, then write an OOP. Like, use a language that's strongly suited for that. JavaScript doesn't even have all the functions of, of OOP languages. It has some of them, and you can, you can mimic and create some of the concepts of encapsulation and prototypical, like, uh, all the things that are in OOP. Encapsulation, I'm too tired to think of all the words and remember school. But, like, you can recreate some of those concepts, but you can't do, you can do inheritance, you can do poly, I don't even know, you can do polymorphism because you can have multiple classes, but... You can do some of those things, but that's not what makes JavaScript powerful. What makes it powerful is the things that you can see in like in React, the functional nature of it, the speed at which it can operate, and the way that like linear structures of classes that only go down one direction with React forces immutability because the components that are the data that's being passed to components can be mutated, but ideally it's just a copy of the data. Like that whole concept and that whole pattern of how that's built is really powerful. And the point I'm going to make, the actual point rather than just babbling, is that TypeScript is trying to hearken back to the way that things like C-sharp work, which actually is OOP, but the language is not OOPable. It's like... OOPable. <laughs> yeah, sure. It, it's not really... That's not what makes it powerful. What makes the language powerful is the scripting nature of it, the functional nature of it, the speed at which you can write stuff. And the minute that you add TypeScript and you add typing and you add interfaces and you go to that world where you have like 
Like you're never going to get like true interfaces and dependency injection in JavaScript. Like you can do it. You can make those patterns work, but it's it's not really like what it's good at. And although one more thing, and I okay. think the thing that makes this makes sense is if you look at PHP and you look at this language that came out at around the same time, you have PHP and JavaScript were made around the same time to handle two sides of a hacky ass web world. And PHP had all these weird functions that were one-off functions that kind of just did stuff for you. And then there was the actual fact that PHP, I don't know what version added it, but it has interfaces. You can build dependency injection. You can have classes that extend other classes and you can do things. You can actually have real interfaces, right? So then you have something like Symfony that comes along and creates objects that, that you know, extend from different, you can basically drop in, replace classes, but you don't have all the overhead of like Java where you have like Java beans that like are defined in an XML file and allow dependency injection through like switching classes and stuff. You don't go that far, which creates this like, I'm not going to really bash on Java because I don't think it's like the worst language, but it creates this unnecessary like encapsulation where people are creating interfaces for things that don't really need interfaces. You ever look at like an old school Spring app and there's an interface for every one of the controllers when they don't really need one because it's just a controller and really you look at node and the way that node works you just make a file you export some functions from it you import them to another function and you and you have reusability of code so what i'm getting at is like php is a language where having that level of interfaces and that level of extensibility and dependency injection allows you to create something that's really powerful like like symphony like Laravel, like all of those things. It makes like a very nice language that's able to drop in, replace drivers for writing for files and doing session storage and all these cool things. But that's because that's what the language was designed to do, right? Then you take something like Node that was designed to be module.exports, you know, require as imports in the common JS syntax. And it was designed to like pull in little snippets of code and run scripts. And what TypeScript does is it tries to make JavaScript more like Java. When in reality, the power behind JavaScript is that it is a lightly typed, object-based, prototypical inheritance language that has some concepts of OOP, but is also functional and is scripting, can be run on the server and the client. It's like a beautiful language. And ES6 made it so much better. So much better. And I just feel like TypeScript is trying to make it into something that albeit it is necessary and it is useful, it's just not like, it's not like the panacea for like JavaScript being amazing. It's, it is helpful in certain circumstances and it is helpful the larger that your app gets and the more data transfer that it's doing. But in reality, backends are switching towards serverless with smaller snippets of functions that do things a lot smaller and really harken to the way that Node.js does just you know, require statements to bring in little utility modules and allows you to run little functions and stuff and everything is callbacks and like the way that Express works, like, you know, it's just a it's just a route with a request response and then it does something really quick. Like that whole concept is what makes JavaScript and Node.js so powerful. And the trying to make that language make such a really big, humongous application necessitates things like, like TypeScript, but it kind of like... It doesn't really remove what makes JavaScript great because it's JavaScript as it is. But I personally get more excited about the things that they're doing in the ECMAScript core than I do about the things that come out in TypeScript. 
I don't know how to explain that. It's just a thought I've had for a while. But like, I'm not trying to say that I hate TypeScript or I don't see the value of it. Obviously, I started in Java, so I understand the value of having typing. But you can make so much more powerful and easy to write scripts if you actually think of JavaScript as a scripting language, which I think ES6 does. And, it, and then the power of it comes from like the map filter and reduce and data manipulation and stuff that comes inherently in the language. I think that everything that you're saying is actually dovetails very nicely with what I'm saying about JavaScript is that JavaScript in 2019 is not what JavaScript was in what, 1994 or 92 or whenever it was initially written, right? The, the web is the one true operating system. Yeah, but is, is the language really best suited for building applications? It might not be, but it's it's the language. It's the language, yeah. It's the language. And it is pretty cool that it can actually do that. Don't get me wrong. Right. Like, it is cool that it can build editors. Right. So a part of this, a part of the question about JavaScript, maybe not necessarily the question of whether or not it's the right tool for the job, but with great power comes great responsibility. Right? Mm-hmm. JavaScript is the one language of the one operating system of all the devices of the whole world. And so whether it likes it or not, or whether it is tuned for it or not, it has a responsibility to be capable of writing a, a government's healthcare system. Depends. I mean, the entire gonna, interface, right? Are the, they going to the write that in JavaScript or are uh, they going to write that back end in Java? And I guarantee you they're writing it in Java with rules, rules and all kinds of stuff applied to the data. Client is still back. JavaScript. Yeah, maybe. And most of the problems of people being able to hack healthcare.gov came from the fact that the JavaScript was implemented wrong on the front end. Right? We talked about uh, the Hertz website. Well, that was a right? project But again, these disaster. are big time projects. Like, yeah, but j- any in, the same way, in the same way that desktop software like a Microsoft Office or Outlook or anything made by Adobe, in the same way that those are quote unquote professional applications, those are big time applications, JavaScript applications on the web are getting to the point where they're that ubiquitous, they're that important. And so the language almost is forced to catch up to those responsibilities, right? If I'm building healthcare.gov, it's going to be a website. People are going to have to be able to log into it. It's going to be written in JavaScript and it has to have the features to make it a first-class language to be able to handle that sort of use case. That's, that's the big-time application that you're talking about that is going to require things like type checking, like strict yeah, but type you know what you can do if you're it. writing a back at like a huge application like that? When you receive data from the user, you can freaking type check it, check it. You don't actually need to use TypeScript to do that. You can just do that. Programming paradigms that allow you to create scalable and resilient code bases on the client do not require another language to be created around a language to do that. It's just not a wait, whole other language, just wait. though. It kind of is. It's kind of not. It compiles. It's like... It's not a whole other language. It's a compiled version of JavaScript. It's just it's a different kind of compiling. It's, it's syntactical just, sugar on top of existing JavaScript. Yeah, but my point, you just said it right there. JavaScript can do it because JavaScript by nature is JavaScript and it has the features that TypeScript has because it compiles into JavaScript. It's not organized. Just because it's doable doesn't mean it's easy or scalable. I, I understand that, but you can just you could just write code that does the things that TypeScript does when you need it to, if you wanted to. Yeah, and it's a mess and it's unmaintainable. Well, maybe. And then you know, TypeScript. So then, what I is think, the so then 
what is the point of the any of these? Because you can do They're any of these. these are you can all, do any of these. Yeah, I know, but in JavaScript. A lot of these are probably because V8 added features that enable those things to be true. V8 is essentially C++ and they probably added some of these features. You don't so know, you don't know things, how to flatten an array? I I when you went over this I said I don't know if I mean I just just probably just use spread. <laughs> like the additional features are a good thing. They are, but these are core features of the language. The additional features of TypeScript are a good thing. Just they, wait just, until... And, and the argument just, of, oh, I can still do this in JavaScript without TypeScript is not a good argument. That's my point. My point, though, is That's that in ES 2022, they're probably going to add types to JavaScript. Okay, that'd be great. What year is it? I don't know. Everything, everything <laughs> in JavaScript... Sure. Of the, the entire history of JavaScript is that it's a hack. Yeah, I, I understand Everything what you're on top saying. Of JavaScript has always been a hack, I and so that is it. the nature. That's the that's mm -hmm. the essence of JavaScript to its core. Is that everything is a hack on top of JavaScript, and so there will always be a different way to do it. There Until will always you write be. a new language that gets rid of the need to do that, and that's what WebAssembly is going to do. Like you're going to be able to write. There's going to be some Maybe. new language that comes out that can run on the browsers because Chrome will eventually win, and WebAssembly will be on everything. Chromium, Edgium, all these things will use V8, and they'll have WebAssembly. And I don't know. Maybe you'll be writing apps in some other language. Maybe. We'll see. That'll be an interesting one to keep track of. Maybe it will be those old old developers that are like, back, nah, in, man. My, back in my day, we had React. We, we didn't have any of this newfangled C stuff. We didn't have any blobs. We could open an inspector and look at the code ourselves. I'm, I mean, maybe... I'm totally going to do that. I'm going to have missing it's gonna teeth. Be, I'm going to have an eye patch. It's going to be great. Maybe it's going to be better. Maybe they'll make a new language that, uh, you know, works really well. Did you know another adjacent article that I kind of sent to you and we didn't really have in the list is PHP is adding uh, is adding types. data types. Yeah. Are you hating on that one too? Uh, I didn't. I, was, I saw it and I was like, huh, that's interesting. Can't you do data types in PHP already? You can do some data types. Like you can, but you don't. So then, what's the necessity no, like, of data typing then? Because it had, it has like the ability to infer data types, and it has some primitives like strings and numbers and arrays and things like that, and and objects and stuff like that. But they don't have like you don't say like int cats equals ten, but you can now in PHP seven. I don't know whatever this. 7.12, whatever the hell it's going to be. 14.26? I think it's 7.4. I don't know. Whatever. Whenever they add it, they're going to add that. And you can actually do that. But the thing was, because they bolted it onto the language, there's nullable defined data types. So you can do like an integer that's allowed to be null. Because it doesn't, because the language can't have... Sounds like any to me. Yeah. But the, the thing is like it doesn't, when you bolt something onto a language, you're going to get weird things like that. Like you can't... If, that's why, that's why, like... But there are actual use cases for any, is a thing. But that's why, like... Well, there are, but you're... Whatever, I'm not going to argue that. But, like, with with having, like, nullable or optional types, like, that's why other languages have a concept of, like, none. That's why Python has a none. Yeah. Because it's a super type of nil, like, essentially, like, the nil equivalent that can be assigned to any value. And PHP or Python does data inference depending on what the value is defined to it's almost like um it, it kind of does like almost what like flow does where if you kind of cast things around it starts to get freaked out um but i don't know like there's there's other i don't know maybe i'm just getting too old for this stuff
You're, you're getting too old. You're, you're getting <laughs> I'm just going to into... be like one of those people that's like, when I was your age, I wrote in Haskell. I mean, <laughs> there, there are two ways that, that you can go when you feel like you're quote unquote too old for a developer. You can either be the, hey, fellow kids, uh, or you can be get off my lawn. And I'm already good off your lawn guy. I'm literally sitting here saying you kind of have to decide which one you're going to be. Like you kind of have to make that decision, right? We we almost had you going the other way. I mean, I got you listening to Travis Scott, right? So we kind of were like pushing you towards the cool kids territory, but it seems like you've come all the way back to that. that Dude, front I don't yard think with Travis Scott man. knows what strongly typing. I mean, what I'm saying is that we were getting you closer to relating to the children. Dude, the minute the that youths. these kids tell me they want to remove semicolons from their code, I was done with them. I was done with those people. You know who you are in New York. Oh, those kids. Those kids those with their kids with their semicolons. I want to remove the semicolons oh, from the language, man. and now they want to like uh, oh, add a typed man. language that allows you to use the keyword any and remove the typing. Like, oh my god. What if what if standard JS uh, gets added to ES twenty twenty? Well, that's the, the AST compiler won't let you do it. Like the the AST, the automatic uh, semicolon insertion thing, transpiling thing that is natively in V8 or whatever, gets confused if you don't actually use semicolons. And cert- there's certain areas where you need them in the language. Do you think that there will ever be like a breaking point where you're just like, I'm done with JavaScript? Dude, some some person who's like 12 years old now is going to go into V8 and they're going to fix the AST compiler. They're like, oh, we can finally have standard. Eight? He's like 12 right now. 12? No. No, no. He's like, going to do it when he's like 20, but he's 12 now. No, he's 12 now and he's oh, going to do it tomorrow. It. <laughs> While he's beating you in Destiny. In Fortnite. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he's killing yeah. me in Fortnite. He's going to be like, this oh, is man. what I'm saying. I just went we're- into the JavaScript compiler and you're such a nerd. You can't even play Fortnite. Now we're over here. I'm like changing the EST compiler for JavaScript to remove semicolons and you can't even shoot me with your, can't hit me with your pickaxe and build the buildings. Like, get, come out on. Here, get out of here, noob. I just rewrote VA from scratch while I was beating you down. Yeah, it's a better way of doing it. But. Get out of here, bro. I don't know. I don't know what I think about all this, but I do I do like the fact that it's getting better. But I I think one of the like one of the reasons why I don't really know how much I like TypeScript is that I, I think the core reason is it it kind of reminds me standard and TypeScript kind of remind me of CoffeeScript, which is like was an old school thing that like tried to simplify and rem- well, especially standard. CoffeeScript is really bad though. Yeah, but it was the thing that was trying to make JavaScript be more fun to type. And I feel like some of these things- didn't add any features. That was the problem. It added like the, you could add the equivalent of like um, Emmet kind of stuff where it would like, it would expand out things for you and you can shrink things down and you could write arrow functions before they had arrow functions. That stuff wasn't as important to type. It was was syntactic sugar on top of something that already existed to make it easier to type. And people were all for it and you had to compile it. And then when that happened, I remember I was like, what, you're going to compile JavaScript? Like, get out of here. And look at this, 2019 Babel. There's a difference between painting the house a different color and boarding up the windows to keep the hurricane from blowing it down. CoffeeScript was painting the house. Type checking is boarding well, up the windows. CoffeeScript had other CoffeeScript had other benefits and had as are, are painting the porch a different color. Like no, it, it had, was it, it was just to make the language literally just look different. It, it was didn't to make add it any additional have features. Less to type. It was to make it so that it was compiled to a standard way of writing JavaScript. There was some stuff in it that was related to making it performant so that you would write something one way when it compile it to the most performant way. I don't know. The point I'm trying to make is that it it's just, it reminds me of those things. Like standard reminds me of that. It's like, what, you want to type less? So you want to remove 
the freaking function call on the catch block. Like, well, just write the parens with no error in it. Like, come on. Well, oh, I, I want to type two less characters. Those kind of things shouldn't be in the core of the language to make us you type less. Forcing you to pass. The, the original is that it forces you to pass error regardless. And then now it's removing yes. that requirement. You so you should, can still no, pass error if you, you should want not, to. I would argue that you should not catch an error and do nothing with the error. You're essentially, if that was in Java, it would error out because you're, you're not re-throwing an error. It literally wouldn't compile. And they're making a thing that wouldn't compile in Java. And then they're saying, oh yeah, you can just catch the error, catch it here and not re-throw it. Sometimes you just need to know that there is an error. You won't because it's going to be caught and it won't it won't bubble. If it hits to the, the catch, that's how you know that there's but, an error. But it that's won't rethrow. It will be gone. It will catch it there, and the top level node process would never know that there's an error because it catches it and closes it. Maybe you don't need to recatch it. The whole to point of a it. the whole point of a throwable error is that you either handle it by knowing what the type of the error is and potentially logging it. Like I don't know, console.warn, You had an error here or console.error, you have an error here, but then not blocking your program so it actually goes to the top process and process.exit with a one. That's the whole point of a catch. And if you're not doing anything with the error, you're essentially just forcing the program to process.continue without doing anything with the error. From up here, in ES2019, ES6, you have to pass error no matter what. Can't you just put a param with no error? No, you have to put... You mm-hmm. have to pass error. Well, I pass error. You know what I do with the errors? I console.error the error. Right. That's fine. But what well, we're saying, my so we're mechanism. arguing about to go, I have to cut an hour of this show out because you've argued a point that you weren't actually trying to make. I am simply saying that you should, you should leave this in and I'm simply saying that you should handle the errors and you should know the error types and you should do something with the error. That's all I'm saying. That is you best practice. You either rethrow it or you send it to your logging system. Yes, that is best practice. Or you console.error it. That is best practice, but, but... Again, I agree with you in a lot of what you're saying, but the mm-hmm. point of including this in the core spec is that the core spec is not there to enforce a certain way. It's not there to enforce best practice of handling errors, right? As long as try catch in and of itself works, the core spec has met its standard of try what it needs to be. Try catch works in terms of if you try a thing, if there is an error, go do this other thing. That's all that the core spec needs to do. This is essentially like a finally that's called catch. Yeah. This is the default of a switch case. That's all this is. But you but you still have to write you still have to write try catch finally with no properties to get it to actually be at the end of a switch case. That the catch finally would only option, run if it's no, uh, finally is optional though. I know, but finally has no arguments. Right. So this is adding no arguments to catch. Which makes no sense because you have finally. Okay? My point. Well, if you don't if you this stops the linter from yelling at you because you never reassign or use error. Yes. That's all it does. That's all it does. It doesn't need to be in the core language. Use error or don't use a try catch. Let the parent get thrown. Let it throw to the parent. That's my point. It's a language construct. There's no other language. I don't want to say that. <laughs> There's maybe probably another language where you can do this. Maybe this is what it's like in C Sharp. You know what the other probably. thing is? JavaScript keeps getting crap from C Sharp because of Microsoft. That's Anyways, true. next topic. The big, the big news of this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest news of this week is announcement from GitHub. Another thing from GitHub today. Uh, they have announced GitHub Actions. Mm-hmm. GitHub Actions now supports CI and CD pipelines completely free for public repos. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a big deal. You know who else does that? GitLab. Travis CI. 
And CircleCI. We don't want to use Travis anymore because the company that bought Travis is apparently not shutting it down, but they are stripping it down for parts, essentially. Uh, My understanding is that nearly the entire development team has been let go. Mm. So that to me is not a product that I want to invest any of my future time in. Well, you know what? This the company that owns this company canceled Adam. So you know. that's true. That's true. Or canceled, but that's because they had a competing better product. You know who else has a competing better product to this? Azure DevOps. That's true. That's true. But the thing is, this is remember, powered by Azure DevOps. It probably is. But remember, the reason why you bought GitHub is to 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 bring people into the ecosystem, to pull people in, and so the reason why this is important is that GitHub has always been kind of the biggest most well-known, most visible place where people version control their code. The distant second has always been GitLab, yeah. right? GitLab has always kind of differentiated themselves or marketed their differentiation from GitHub by including a CI/CD pipeline out of the box for any repo that you mm-hmm. have. I use GitLab at my office and we have CI/CD pipelines on every single repo just because it's there and it's so easy to set up. It's very configurable and works really well with the, with the interface. That has always been GitLab's selling point. Maybe not a very effective selling point, but it's always been the one thing that's been actually different between the two services because ultimately they're not that different. Well, the other thing that's been really different between GitHub and it is the social network nature of it. GitLab is not as social. It's GitLab like is not that social. No, it's, it's not. social within an org. Right. It's almost, it's really funny because in reality, Microsoft probably should have bought GitLab because that's more attuned to the way they run their businesses. Smaller teams working in tools that allow enable them to do things versus GitHub, which is like the social coding of the world. Well, but Microsoft wants to be more social and they own they, LinkedIn. They, and they want things, to but. acquire users. They need users on Azure. That's that was the whole point of this. But then why would they, okay? Then why would they make this? Because well, they this, want you to use Azure this DevOps. This probably works with Azure DevOps. This is probably a plug and play system that works with Azure, Azure DevOps. What do you There's think the odds are that they were already almost done building this before they got acquired by Microsoft? Because they've probably been question. building this forever. To they already with GitLab. had a thing called GitHub Actions. Yeah, but those only triggered those were only hooks. Those were web hooks that triggered other things. Yeah, so those you would use those to hook into your Travis's, your circles, your whatnot. Yeah, they created an ecosystem of tools that you can use many different tools, including Jenkins yes. and GoCD to do your CI. And right, they, but, but they were not fully built out from within the repo in the same way that GitLab was. So that was always I kind mean, of a differentiator. But now, mm, what they Do you have a config file in GitLab where you write like some YAML and you put yeah, it in the repo? Yeah, it's GitLab.yaml. Yeah, it's the same thing, circle.yaml. Yeah. Tra- dot Travis. Yeah, but now this is, this is like a, I guess they'll probably do like a, github.yaml or something well, like that. Well, maybe. They also so, say that you add a Docker Compose file and one of the things that they do is that they'll spin up a Docker environment to test your app for you. Just pretty interesting. Oh yeah, there's the GitHub. The yeah, GitLab. so we're, we're reading the announcement right now. Fast this CI CD for any OS. This looks exactly like... Like GitLab. Circle CI. It's a YAML file, yeah. Circle CI is the same thing. It's a, it's a YAML file that does the same stuff. That's one less service. I mean, maybe, but... Typically, I, I, I mean, it's nice if it ties into like GitHub issues and one of the I, things I think that was exactly always, what it does. No, I know. I it know. ties into the project. It ties into yeah, the issues, ties into the PRs, all that stuff. I know. One of the things that was really confusing about Circle that I didn't always like is that it was, 
it wasn't circle made it easy to associate webhooks and pulls and pushes on GitHub using GitHub's actions to like push back statuses to your PRs. Like this thing has passed the build. Like they worked really well together. GitHub worked really well together to make an ecosystem where people could create those kinds of adapters to your repo so that when right. you, when you had a PR, it would like show the results of the, the build and all that. Um, which is interesting that they, that they then created a competing product to those tools that they enabled other people to build. It's an interesting timeline thing. I think that having this as kind of feature parity with GitLab is a big deal. I think that's probably one of the main reasons why they added it. But having options with something that is an open protocol like Git is, is only good. Well, I would argue that GitHub is not an open protocol. Oh, like GitHub Git. is not an open protocol, <laughs> yeah. but using Git for version control just in general is absolutely oh, yeah. an open protocol. But there's not the reason why GitHub was so powerful is because they added things on top of exactly, and this is more of the that. Git protocol. All the Git protocol is, I mean, the Git protocol technically doesn't even have PRs. That was a GitHub no, thing. That was a GitHub thing. Yeah, those were just but branches like, that got managed and merged in. Yep, issues. Uh public pull request, the starring, all that stuff is our, our features on top of the core functionality of version control. And this, to me, it just seems like the natural extension of that, right? I this mean, little window of this, what they call live logs to show you real-time feedback, this looks exactly like what, what Circle gives you. Circle CI. This is exactly what uh, GitLab gives you in their pipelines. You just click to the pipelines. It'll show you the jobs in real time. It's very configurable. This gives it feature parity with GitLab is the biggest thing. But it gives you options. If you're already in the GitHub ecosystem, if you're, say, running CircleCI already on one of your projects and you're not enjoying the shade of blue that they use for the buttons, hey, guess what? You got an option now. And it's one YAML file away. I think so, this is only a good thing. It can only improve any of the tools that exist, right? CircleCI is either going to step their game up to compete with this, to give me a reason to go outside of my existing I've repo to do Circle? that. I've used Circle for very basic things. But again, having that external tool, if something that is internal that lives with my code is basically the same thing. I mean, you you provide a Circle YAML in your code that That's defines true. how the Circle, Circle pipelines work. That's true, but I'm going to another site to look at it. Okay. I mean, there is there there's is something nice to be said that there is friction there, right? That is, there's some there's friction. There's always additional step. And anytime you can remove friction out of a system... It's always good. It's always better. I'm kind of looking at the pay-as-you-go pricing page right now for the beta. Public repositories, 100% free all the time. I think that's a good move. I same, think with that makes circle, same with Circle, same with Travis. Same with Travis. The private repos, this is a little bit interesting because it's breaking down the pricing by minutes. And so I'm not familiar with, with how that works, but I'm assuming that that means minutes of like runtime. It's run minutes time. of the runtime of the job, yeah. Okay. So like a typical deployment that has to, if you have to build a Docker container to like then build, run, and test your typical app, that typically takes about four minutes per build. Okay. So that's from like... From literally inception from a PR of PR to a built, deployed application. That's... It depends on how long the actual build and test pipelines are, but like... For a typical like web app, it can t and, and assuming you don't pre-build the containers, which is something that Circle allows you to do, you can actually say like pull this Docker image and then build, and that Docker image might be pre-embedded with 
PHP or it might be pre-embedded with, I don't know, whatever you're using, Java or Node or whatever, some specific version of Node, right? But with typically, if you start with like an empty plain container, plain Jane container, you can pick like a Node container or you can pick, I don't know, maybe a Java container or whatever in Circle. You can say like, I want this default container, but it won't be like your container. So like a good a good case would be like, when you're just when you're just checking out a repo, depending on how large it is, and then setting up some initial tooling, like say it's a node, the simplest project would probably be like a node project, right? Right. Where you can just start from a node container with roughly the same version of node that you want. Like say you pick like the official node container at a certain version. You say that's my container. It'll already have node built in, but then say you need yarn. Well, okay, well now you got an npmi g yarn, and that's takes part time. of your and that's part of your minutes. It's part of your minutes. Okay. Depends on how large your container is, but it could be anywhere from like two to seven minutes. Okay. So it's not like an hour. I mean, it can't, I don't know. I've never seen like a build take like an hour unless. I mean, you're usually tuning your builds down to try to get them shorter, right? Yeah. You want to try to use as slim of Docker containers as you can. So they take less time to download, less time to upload. You want to have it so that your, that's why they created Yarn was one of the reasons. Yeah, Yarn Yarn is faster. Much faster. NPM has caching too now. So you have to cache things, like you cache um, like your node modules. So that the next time that Circle runs, it pulls in your node modules. Right, you're not and that re-NPM installing every single You're not time. re-NPM okay. installing, but then granted if there is If you update something change, that redoing or I guess clearing out your cache and repopulating your cache well, still de- counts as part of your minutes? Everything that it does counts as part okay. of your minutes. But if you do a git pull, you can typically... See, these are the things where CI gets really confusing, right? They can either make it really easy or they don't. Well, I think doing it by minutes is probably the best way to do it. Because there's you could you imagine if they had some sort of table that broke down? Like if you do npm install, you pay this rate. If you do no. Docker compose, you pay this rate. Like there's no way you could possibly do it. So minutes, minutes is the only way you minutes can is really the only this. way to do it. The other way you can do it is by concurrent builds, which is what Circle does. You can only have one concurrent build. So you But you can do it, you can have as many ace like you can have as many subsequent builds, right? Yeah, they'll just queue and they'll have one at a time. So they charge you, they don't charge you per minute of use. Okay. They just only allow you to build one thing at a time, which typically is enough to enforce you to pay more because when you're any kind of bigger organization, yeah, if you have multiple streams of work, you'll have more than one stream of yeah. work or more than one branch even is a different stream of work. You can literally only have one concurrent build at a time. So imagine feature slash Albert's guitars is being built and feature slash Greg's, you know, uh, sunglasses, sunglasses, the corner of the room where he's yelling at young kids with semicolons has to be they can't be built at the same time so you're waiting for my work to be done imagine you have 20 developers get you're waiting out of for, my queue greg you're waiting you're for 20 too long greg you're waiting for 20 developers to finish their job so yeah minutes or concurrent builds this is actually slightly more flexible because up until you exhaust your minutes per the for the given month you can have as many builds as you want yeah but if you go through all 2000 minutes in the first 14 days because you're doing a lot of builds well, then you're gonna have to pay. So Actually, I, I think it's two doesn't happen. Another. No, if that's true, if you ha- if this includes concurrent builds or not, I don't think it's. It didn't say anything about that. So I, I don't, don't think. Know if it, it actually I think does. it's a direct competitor against the way that Circle. It's a direct uh, vertical comparison to Circle. They're like, we don't like that. We want to make it so you just have minutes, like like cell phone plans. Yeah, and you buy more minutes. I think the point that you and I are both making is that this is not a revolutionary product. The reason why this is a big deal is that it is a feature that they didn't have before. It is a feature that developers have had to kind of work around. Well, you work around it by having ops and actually like 
building right. deployment pipelines. Right, but There's now another, that you have an option that's built into the you know, GitHub, could, it's one less thing to do. It's one less thing to go outside of your actual GitHub. And, and so it, it gets us closer to our dream of fully automated continuous delivery end to end. I mean, it you gets can one do step it, closer to that, right? You could do it pretty easily with Circle already. You could do it pretty easily with Circle, but more competitors means it's only having more options, having more competitive options, having more options closer to, closer to the middle, if you will. It is going to make it easier mm-hmm. sure. to implement these sort of things, no matter the size of your repo, because you're already on GitHub. Well, you're tools probably, are already there. You're probably, what I'm getting at is you're probably going to end up paying more money. I that's to actually have a very it as good point. a first party thing. That is a very good point. I'm very interested to see. It doesn't show what the actual prices are for these tiers. Uh for the minute tiers. It does show the prices for the hosted runners, for the various operating systems for hosted runners, which well, I Well, that's find additional very hosted runner minutes. So you get so if you, you probably get two thousand minutes per month of a single runner, and then if you add an additional runner, it's it's zero point zero eight cents per minute. Right, and then the other thing that is interesting is that it gives you options for operating system. The additional hosted runner minutes, I think that the fact that they break it down by OS opens up some well, I think possibilities. The really interesting thing that I was going to mention is what is the bottom one? Self-hosted. Another one above that. Mac OS. That yeah. was the one that I was looking at. That's very interesting. Could I use this to build my Mac OS apps? You could use it to run and build your Swift apps and you could use it to probably to, yeah, to run and build your, um, to compile, sign and deploy your apps. Yeah. Which is interesting because the only other services that really do that, are, there's a couple of them, but there, the, there biggest one is, the biggest one is BitRise and BitRise yeah. is actually really dope. Yeah. Now, to be fair, it is literally 10 times more expensive to run on Mac OS than it is to run on Linux box. But, oh, yeah. but, 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 but... Well, they're running a Mac Mini for you. They're running a Mac Mini for you. It, it's still going to be cheaper than deploying a fleet of MacBooks to your developers. Well... Right, the to, developers to actually build the have... app. That, that's, the, that's what this, I would assume, this could be used for. I guess uh, we're letting our minds run a little bit here, but the only reason that you would separate this line out and say that this even exists is for that. Right? Like, am I, am I wrong in thinking that? No, it's for simple build servers for relatively small apps. Having more competitors in that space? Yeah, having a simple competitor. There haven't been that many. There no, aren't there that aren't. many services that do that. There so having a company like GitHub that everybody knows and everybody loves, being able to offer a service like this? That's true. It's very interesting. If I was a, If I was running a single iOS app... If you're a like small, a small like app? A, a, an individual developer, I've got one app on yeah. the App Store. I just spilled a cup of water on my 2015 MacBook Pro. I really don't want to spend $6,000 on a machine that doesn't have a functioning keyboard, but I need to build my app. This might come to the rescue for you. Well, a lot of the times you're, you don't... Building things on Xcode and then uploading them to the store is not like impossible... I mean, they've designed tools that do it, but any sufficiently large app with even more than one developer is probably going to want that option because what you actually need to do is you need to build the version of the app and then you need to upload it to TestFlight or whatever. There's another service that does the same thing, but TestFlight is the big one. Yeah, You need to take your build and put it in TestFlight and then allow your beta testers to test it. Well, if you add on that, I mean, TestFlight was bought by Apple so that... They you can could control do this. It, yeah. They could con- well, not really control, but 
it makes it easier to integrate testing. They didn't have a testing framework before they bought TestFlight. So no. TestFlight was created out of necessity because they didn't have it. You had to either upload it to the store or not. Because Apple's like, well, you can run it on your Xcode app and you can run it on the simulator and it's fine, right? No, then they created TestFlight and you're like, well, I want to share it to a bunch of beta testers and have them test it on their phones and do all these things. So the company created TestFlight and Apple bought them. But if you wanted to build it and upload a build to TestFlight, that Mac OS server... That's the way you would do Probably it. one of the most appealing options in yeah. that list of things. Absolutely. It is one of the more unique offerings. That's yeah. something that GitLab doesn't do. GitLab doesn't have that. No, and neither does... I, and don't call me, but I don't think Circle does either. I don't either. think Circle either. And Travis I don't think definitely, Travis, Travis definitely, doesn't. definitely didn't. So that's, that's a unique thing. We will keep an eye on this. We will keep an eye and see if you can actually sign apps. No, you, if you have a Mac OS hosted machine, oh yeah, you can. You can well, sign apps. Now let, let's pump the brakes. Let's let's pump the brakes a little bit here. Just boom, boom, because boom, we're running on macOS doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have complete feature parity with like a MacBook. Oh, there right? is yes. There's no way that they're not installing Xcode CLI tools on that. For sure, they are. It's a. It's a. I I would agree with you, but it's still it's still it's still something that we need to keep an eye on. We don't want, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I'm going to tell you right now. There's no way that they provide that option and charge eight cents per minute, point eight cents per minute. No, that's eight cents a minute. Okay. There's no way that they do that without it actually having full parity with the Mac OS. There's no reason. Yeah, it's you're, a server you're farm of Mac right. Minis. Yeah, sure. there's no reason to offer a Mac OS option unless, unless it has sign CLI on it. So this is very interesting. Um, just as a kind of a, a follow-up to this, uh, GitLab, within hours, mm-hmm. GitLab decided to put out an article about how their roadmap is is like, we've got all these features coming. And oh, they're like, scared. It was, it was clearly a kind of a, a response. That is actually, they actually uh, released two different articles that I think can be considered responses to this action from GitHub. And one is one is this blog post talking about their their pipeline. That's kind of a a passive aggressive way of saying that they're, they're, they're keeping up with things. Um, but the second one that I saw was a post that was called the market has validated our business model. That's literally the title. That is insane of the thing. And so somebody from GitLab, I don't know who this person is. They wrote an article basically saying, Oh, look, like people in the industry are now copying us. And so that means we are correct and right in the one true way. And it was very, very like chest thumpy and kind of, a little bit cringy. Like if you're really as good as you say you are, you don't need to say stuff like that. Yeah. Right. Just put out good stuff. Just put out good features. A lot of the other stuff that they have is like cool for really big orgs. But like, if you're a small company, you just need separate swim lanes, releases, tagging of issues for releases. And then when a release is done, you should be able to auto bundle, especially now that they have a build system, you can hit release on your, your Kanban board, it takes all those and tickets, wipes all your tickets, drops them into a beautiful commit log for the release. Done column. Do, 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 all the tickets like you used to do inside of Jen, inside of Jira when you released a release. Boom! All those tickets compressed. Forty-seven things fixed in this release. Automatically writes you your readme, your release log. Like it actually makes perfect sense. And do you know what you do at the end of that? You stand up and you go, the aristocrats. <laughs> oh God. I don't get the reference. Is that a movie? The Aristocrat. It, Whatever. The Aristocrats mm-hmm. is a documentary about a joke framework okay. where the punchline is 
the aristocrats. And if mm. you go watch the documentary, uh, you'll I'll understand. I'll do that when I have. You'll some understand time. the punchline. Um, it's a framework for people to make basically the raunchiest joke that they can possibly make, mm. and the punchline is the aristocrats. All right. So we're well, gonna make that Greg's pick. I bet the Aristocrats documentary is on YouTube. I will track down a link for it. Warning to those who are going to watch it is definitely going to be not safe for work. Do not click on this at work, but go home and watch it and you'll understand why I say the Aristocrats at the end of it. So that's Greg's pick. I don't care what he says. That's his pick. Okay. My pick is a show. It's a television show that I really, really, really want to talk about. It's a show called Fleabag. It's a show called Fleabag. Have you, about, have you seen it? You haven't seen I it? do not have time to watch television. So it's on Amazon Prime, which I'm no, I'm mostly a Netflix person, but this is a show. There's some good shows on Amazon. This Prime. is almost worth signing up for Amazon Prime Video for its television show. It's a show called Fleabag. It is a British dark comedy. Yeah. It follows a young lady mm-hmm. in her trials and tribulations dealing with love and relationships and running a business and family and it is so hilariously cringily Britishly funny what's her job she runs a cafe mm. it is a hamster no it is a guinea pig themed cafe and Brilliant. I say it like that because that's how they say it but but it's great that you mentioned that because the cafe is actually a critical piece of the storyline and this is not just a like British office style where it's just kind of cringy jokes all the time. There actually is a plot line to it. And there actually is a purpose for her insanely neurotic, crazy older sister and her awful, awful stepmother and her father who has checked out since their mother has died. And there are reasons for all these things and there are reasons for all of the characters. And it is so brilliantly written and brought together and also funny at the same time. There are all these little vignettes that are bookended in perfectly timed ways and just, oh, such a good show. Really, really funny. Again, not safe for work. Do not watch this at work. But go home and watch it. I have a question. At some point. It is spectacular. Two seasons on Amazon Prime Video. Worth checking out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Greg, Greg, where can people find you on the internet? Can they find you on GitHub? Oh, totally. Yeah. Is it social? Because it's so social, right? Greg is on Twitter. Yep. At Grigorski. Mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter. At Al Park. The show is at a public function. New tweets there every Tuesday when the new episodes go up. This week, we would like all of our listeners to tweet at the show and let us know what your favorite television show is. And if we get enough responses, if we get some good ones, we will force Greg to pick one and watch and give us a show report. Oh, yeah. This will motivate him to, to keep up with the kids and know what's going on. In Dude, is someone going to make a documentary about <laughs> semicolons and JavaScript? Oh, man, that would be hilarious. We're at a public function on Twitter. We are also on the web, publicfunction.show. This is episode number 34, backslash 034. All the episodes, all the show notes are there. We're also at dev.2 backslash public function. Shout out to the homies, Ben Halpern, the whole crew. There are a lot of podcasts on their podcast page these days. We're not hallowed anymore? I mean, they're pretty hallowed. Uh, I feel like a lot of them are bigger than ours. (laughs) Like, we've been there longer than some of the bigger ones. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we are having a great time over there. They're doing a really great work, I think. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, publicfunction.show backslash contact is the contact form. You can send us information there. You can also email us directly. Hello at publicfunction.show. I read those emails. If you say something nice, I'll read them on the air. Boom. Greg, do you have anything else for us? Um, Howlet Halls, man. Okay, we'll see you next week. Yeah. You hear that count off? Did you hear it count off? Yeah, no. I heard the tick, tick, ticks. Yeah. Okay, good. Why, did you not? Are you deaf now? No, I did. You can't be an audio engineer if you're deaf, Albert. You can be a developer if you're blind. Can you? Yeah. We posted that video. Gotta get those video. ARIA fields and those React Native apps. I, uh, I posted that video once of a gentleman who works at Microsoft. And he was at, he did a presentation at a build conference, I think from 2017 where he coded an app from scratch in Visual Studio with the, a combination of a screen reader. And he knew how to type. I don't know how to type. Which is wild. Oh, wait, he... He, as a blind yeah, it's all person... Finger. It's all finger situations. ...knew how to type. Yeah. So you have no excuses because you are a sighted person. No, that's probably the reason why I don't know how to type is I can see the keys. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to steal your keyboards. I'm going to steal all your keyboards. I guess what I'm going to do to him, Greg. Blank keys. Good, good luck. I just won't work anymore. Blank keys. I literally would not be able to work if I had blank keys. There was a thread I saw. I forget where I saw it, but there was a thread I saw that posed the question, what would coders do if they couldn't type? And it posed this question kind of as a thought exercise and said, there's a coder. has been coding for a very long time. A very, very smart person. They do a lot of things. In a horrendous woodworking accident, they managed to cut off both their hands at the wrists. Is this a real thing? That is, it's theoretical. It's a thought exercise. Okay, I was pretend like it's a real yeah. thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What does this, this is person my worst do? Fear. What does this person do? I don't uh, know. Aside from aside from how life changing having both your hands cut off, just in general would be. Yeah, but specifically to the career of being a software developer. I would just switch to management and not type. Oh, sorry. I didn't get your email. Oh, I was, was going to write yeah, you. You can dictate emails. You can do voice to text on emails. I would make that joke all day long. I would just say, you know what? I was going to respond. Well, that's but why you would get fired for being insensitive, Albert. I was going to write you back, but. Oh, you mean the is the. Oh, oh. I, I thought you meant you would that. say that to the person who no, was. No, 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 no. no I would fall back on. If I was the person who was missing the hands. And somebody said, hey, did you, did you see an email? Did you have a chance to respond? Every single time. You know what? I was going to, but... But then they'd be like, dude, you're supposed to be doing your job. And I thought you said you could do it with no hands. And then, You said it's not going to be an impediment. No way. And that I would hold one up. I'd say, guess which finger I'm holding up right now? Yeah, but then you would... <laughs> the thing is, in order to do your job, you have to be able to yeah, do your well, job. Well, the comments to this hypothetical question really centered around how good dictation software has become since the 
since uh, Dragon and Nuance yeah. was bought by Apple like, and was incorporated into Siri. And so how it's gotten way, way better, how it's gotten more accurate, how it's gotten faster. Is that the one that's built into the Mac? Because I never uh, used it. No, so Nuance makes one called Dragon, which is their own yeah. one, but Siri is almost entirely based on Dragon. It's just mm-hmm. different, different No, voice. I know about Dragon. One of my friends used to use it when I was in high school. Uh, but Dragon like predates like Google Assistant and Bixby and stuff like that. So I remember in one of my early Android phones that there was a Dragon app and you just hit the button and you would talk to it and it would do all the things. It wasn't very good. It was, it was good at reading what you said, but it wasn't very, it wasn't smart. Obviously this is, you know, 2012, I think 2013, maybe. This is what I would do. What would you do? I would take my hands. I would go over to Elon Musk and I'd be like, dude, your lack of hands. Where's my wetware? No, I would take the hands that were lost. No, you're, you went to the wrong place. You got to go north. You got to go to Menlo Park. No, everything. You got to always rely on Elon. Mr. Z. Mr. Z's working on that. Who's Mr. Z? Who would Mr. Z and, and Menlo Park be? Come on, man. I have so many nicknames for all these people that we pretend to know. I don't like know who know. you're talking about. Who the hell is Mr. Z? Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? Come on, man. Oh, I, I tend to not think about them unless it pertains to React. I don't have a Facebook account, so whenever... The only time I ever you think about Mark Zuckerberg is when he's in the news. He there was an article that said that they've been working on a, a brain interface. I don't want their brain interface. You don't want their see. I you don't want, want their, their brain, brain, interface. brain interface. No, I do not need a graph API you in my brain. Absolutely do not. Want, Dude, they would you be like, imagine they would be scanning your cerebral cortex for like graph associations. Could you imagine the ads you get served from the insane thoughts that you have in your brain? Ugh. Mm, no, Ugh. I don't want that at all. Ugh. The only kind of like brain interface that I want is one that allows me to type from thought, which actually you don't even have to type. It just, whatever you're thinking, it puts down correctly syntaxed as a coder. By that, you can take my hands away. You wouldn't even need ESLint at that point. Every, every, no, no, because my brain correct. would still write things incorrect. Well, I guess it would, if you were to say like, I want to write a function that does yada, 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 it would just do it and it would be as syntactically correct as... It would just take your it inputs. Would work. Yeah, you you would be thinking, okay, I want this function, I want it to be called this. No, you wouldn't even have to think of the naming. This is oh, this is the breakthrough of what wetware would do. Mm-hmm. It would name things for you, and it would be correct, and it would work every time. That would be the breakthrough. I'm only like sixty percent joking about that. I mean, it could do a lot more than just naming things. But for naming you. things is hard. I mean, I guess, but it would also do a lot of other things. Like it could, it could associate code for you. It could lint your code. It could run it. It could like run a REPL in your brain. The, the linting and the formatting. And the oh man, imagine if you eval in. JavaScript inside oh, of your wetware. Could you imagine? It would like oh, shock man. you like a dog collar. No, you like SQL inject yourself. Oh jeez. Select star from brainstem where Oh man. brainstem situation cortex ID is 10 and then you're like, oh God, it's a memory from childhood. No. So does that mean anybody who can actually like physically touch you can hack you? I don't know. They'd have to like inject you with something. They'd have to access filter right. your body. You'd have to like, uh, you'd have to have penetration testing for your doctor's office. You'd have to have penetration testing for life. When you're talking about doctor's everything office. In, yeah, everything in your life. Yeah. They Maybe just, not necessarily Someone contact. can just poke you with some nanobots. They go into your brain and then they That's take over your wetware. You, you gotta stay away from things that can poke you. Yeah. Drone, drone I don't mosquitoes. Actually, I don't know if I actually want that kind of wetware. I would just want like, I would just want something that like, I don't know. I don't know. This is getting into like a uh, black mirror type situation, but everything is black mirror, man. It's I would just, I don't know if I would actually want that. I would just want the ability to think and type 
or think and look things up. I want, or to I, be able to like to be able to read things in your eye on a contact. I'd rather have that than wetware. Yes, I would want a dumb but fast translation layer between what I'm thinking and stuff in the real world. So we talked mm-hmm. about before about how I want my lights to re- my lights in my apartment to respond to where I physically am in my apartment. I want that. I was also thinking the other day is that I want my refrigerator to be able to order stuff for me mm-hmm. without me having to think about it. You can it. make that happen with Samsung. You can, but I mean, Samsung starts adding their freaking refrigerators, which... Gotta get G- the ad-free one, man. T-F-O with that. I don't G-T-F-O care if there's like an ad on my thing. It's like... I care if there's an ad on my thing. Click this button for this kind well, of milk. okay, so the ad on the thing is less problematic than the fact that they don't update their firmware. So like a lot of their TVs, like probably the TV that we're looking at right now, my, my living room TV. Do you have it connected to the internet? Yes, I do. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. I did update it, but I'm pretty sure the version, the firmware and the OS that they're running on this TV is based on a really, really old version of Android. Like an unpatched old, like I'm talking like 4.4 or something like that. So I'm just like a walking, like, you know, target. So everyone can get me. Yeah, they're probably like, know what you're talking about right now. This forced me to like change all my passwords for anything that I log into through the CV. Like my Netflix password is 100 characters long. So good luck with that one. That's really the only thing I'm logged into on this TV. I'm definitely not touching any of my email stuff on this TV. I have smart TVs. I just don't connect them to the internet. I have an Apple TV, which I trust. Yeah, that's the thing. I think that my next TV, I just want it to be the dump pipe. No, you can get it. Just don't plug it in anything. Just don't plug it into anything. And get like Watch, a they like use I would a, probably go Roku Oh, man. Do you something. know how many... I wonder how many TVs have um, like electricity-based wi- Wi-Fi cards. Not like... like or, or like... um. Wait, they default to on or something? No, like a two... I was thinking like, you know, those those like devices that you plug into two places of your house and they send internet over power. Mesh. Power of internet to mesh things. I wonder if all these TVs are just like mesh communicating to each other. So if one person in the building has it connected to Wi-Fi, your TV is connected to Wi-Fi anyways. TV net? Yeah, TV net. 2021. Black Mirror. The Samsung TVs are going to attack us? No, they're not going to attack you. They're just like, they're all communicating to each other over a private mesh network, like a Zigbee mesh network or some kind. And then they translate, transfer data to the one that's connected to the internet nearby. And they sell that data to Facebook. Oh yeah, for sure. Thankfully, this operating system in this model of television does not have any ads on it. That you know of. There are apps that are essentially ads because they're garbage apps and they don't really work that well. But for the most part, there hasn't been random banner ads or pop-ups or anything like that online. Well, newer models of Samsung televisions have been reported to show ads in the navigation menus, in like the settings for color and brightness. People should just like like make televisions and stop. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's kind of the argument for not spending a bunch of money on a TV. I mean, if you're dumb enough to watch TV through like the Bixby TV app, then they can track whatever you're watching. But other than that, it should just be a TV. It should just be a TV. Dumb pipes. That's why my TV, my my TV at home is uh, eight, nine, ten years old. Don't have, right. don't have no 4K, but, it, you know, it doesn't have, doesn't have Zigbee Wi-Fi. Yeah, notice how people who make computer monitors don't have any sort of OS or apps or anything on the computer monitors. Granted, it's a little bit of a different market Man. that you're selling to, but ultimately they serve the same purpose, and that's just to give me pixels that I feed it. I wish that's that my LG had automatic input switching, but it doesn't. 
Automatic input switching is good when it works. The problem How does is it not it work? work? It just detects that there's a video source and it switches to that input. Turns what if you have input. multiple things that are playing video sources? How does it decide? I mean, I don't, I don't do that. Well, that's then the you manually select it. It that's selects the, the first one to be detected. Auto- then it's not automatic anymore. <laughs> it's conditionally automatic. When there's only one source, it turns it on and goes to it. When there's two sources, it stays on the first one it connected to. Then it's not automatic. Well, then, then if you want to switch to another one, then you switch the input manually. But most of the time, it would be right. Because my laptop is sometimes connected to my monitors, and then sometimes it's connected to my PC. And if my laptop is disconnected and the, the computer monitor comes alive, then the monitor should turn on and go to that input. It's not that hard. It's software. Logic. Sometimes Dude, it's literally an hard. if statement. That's true. If existing input source connected, ignore automatic input But you're going to have to type check that input coming thing because it could be null. It could be undefined. It could be an empty string. If Dude, it's like C or something like that, then... Literally you know, use know. a C program to run a diff against the pixels and make sure that it's not all black. Do you, like, do you type check? Well, what if it's, it's a freaking serving, TV. What if it's serving a black image? Mm. I don't know. Then I guess... Didn't you, think of that one, did you? Well, then you just turn on. And if it doesn't show an image for a while and the pixels stay black, then go to sleep. Oh, Why man. do you have to worry about these things? Literally, if there's a picture that comes in that's actually a desktop that has more pixels that are different than just all black, turn on. That's it. Some people and have then maybe, all you know, black then, backgrounds on there. The thing is, if it works 85% of the time, it's better than it being than not working 100% of the time, which is where it's at right now. Okay, so... I, I agree with you in most part. I think that last 15%, though, is a very annoying 15%. It's annoying it enough to be, be like, this dumb, sucks, get this out of here. It can't, then you turn it off. Then you go into the setting, you say automatic input switching off. If there's only like an open source way. If there was an open source OS for your TV, would you run it? If it did all the things that, that you wanted it to do, if it had all the apps or whatever services I don't run use. apps on my TV. I just use... But like, the idea that it's open source and it's been vetted by the public... I don't love open public, source as much as you do. It's not even the fact that it's open source, that it's not being run for nefarious reasons by... You don't know what's in open source code. There could be some. Yes, stuff you do. Some... That's the point of open source. Yeah, if you look at all one thousand lines of your television, but source it doesn't code. have to be you. It could. It there are people who their profession is to go through publicly available or sometimes not publicly available code bases to look for vulnerabilities specifically. And if somebody came out and said, "Hey, we made this open source television operating system that respects your privacy." You better believe that security researchers are going to be all over that. And they're going to try to be the first one that says, nope, you're not. Because that's what security research is all about. But then you got Node.js where somebody just code injects the wrong thing and you're done. Yeah. And guarantee you the first talk at next year's DEF CON when that comes out is somebody well, saying, hacked Look all at, these TVs. I hacked all these TVs. Yeah. And I didn't tell anybody until... Because I wanted to use it for nefarious reasons. And all of a sudden I turned on your microphone and listened to you. No, but these are, these are people... The, the people who tend to be the highest impact in the security research field are the ones that do it for the right reasons. Yeah, you know what else you could do? Have a television that just shows pixels. That's true too. You could just do that. And That's then sure, too. if it's open source and you want to upload like a, a widget that does your own custom automatic input switching where you wrote your own logic, sure, do that and then disconnect the Ethernet cable. Just disconnect from the internet entirely. If there was a TV that you could hack where like the base OS was like, okay, I understand inputs and you can plug into like an Ethernet port and tell it to calibrate itself or whatever and set the colors and stuff and you did everything from like an app, that would actually be kind of cool. Yeah. Then you could just turn off everything else. What are you doing? Open source. What did you just do? I'm messing with the... What? I'm messing with the noise gate knob. I think it's too far open. What does it do? What did you do? It made my voice sound different. 
No, it's because you moved your mouth. I sound very different when I'm like this. How many times? Yeah, even just changing the angle of your mouth like this completely changes the tone of your voice. This is what I'm saying is that the EQ of an audio track is not linear. It's not just, okay, change everything from here. It's dynamic. It flows. Riding the waves, man. Up and down.